0: My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Laws podcast, we listen to a recording of an interview of me by Eugene Purier that originally aired on Radio Sputnik out of Washington, D.C. on June 29, 2017.
1: And we're very happy to be joined for our conversation here as we slightly switch gears by Dr. Philip Stinson, who's an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Stinson, thank you so much for being with us again. Oh, my pleasure. So I wanted to uh, touch on this issue of the, the three officers charged in Chicago with conspiracy and some other charges for attempting to cover up what took place there with Laquan McDonald. It seems like this is a pretty big deal to me, the case sort of taking on directly this whole idea of a, of a thin blue line protecting people who do the wrong thing, but your thoughts?
0: Well, there's three charges each of the officers were indicted for, so conspiracy, Official Misconduct and Obstruction of Justice. So I've been reading the uh, true bill, the indictment that was returned by the grand jury. And, you know, this is interesting on several levels. First of all, I don't believe these were officers who were on the scene who witnessed the shooting. The three officers who've been indicted were actually charged with the task or, or had the task of investigating the shooting and the death of Mr. McDonald. So these are the investigators. They were responsible for conducting components of parts of the investigation and this is very troubling because you know there are a lot of people who have suggested that police departments should have other agencies come in to investigate police shootings. That there's too many potential problems that could arise by having officers investigate their own officers who are involved in fatal shootings and I think This is a troubling case. I mean, we know that on occasion some police officers lie. We know that some police officers have lied about the circumstances of the uh, shooting incidents, officers who were there, officers who were involved. But to have officers who were charged with the responsibility of conducting the investigation to be charged with conspiracy to obstruct justice and a conspiracy to commit official misconduct, to lie to the public, to lie to their supervisors, to lie to the court. This is a problem, and I think it's going to open the floodgates for people to once again suggest that perhaps we need to rethink this in terms of how are these cases investigated and how are they prosecuted, who investigates and who prosecutes.
1: No, I, I think that's uh, that's a good point, and it'll be very interesting to see what comes out in this case. I mean, it's always difficult to say, but I mean, it seems like They've got these guys pretty dead to rights here because the story they constructed about what took place and when I was reading the complaint about the knife and the attack, I mean, from just what we can see in the video just seems to be essentially totally fake.
0: Absolutely. And then they went farther to, uh, to write up narratives as to what the video consisted of, and that was false. And remember, Van Dyke, the officer who shot Mr. McDonald, was only charged a year after the shooting and only after a court had ordered the city to release the video of the
1: incident and then within a day he's charged. Mm-hmm. with murder. Yeah, I mean, it really uh, is interesting to see. You know, one issue that I think that also is sort of connected to this, you know, you and I have talked about this before and the importance of sort of the discretion of local prosecutors and the way things happen and how it moves. I mean, it does seem to some degree that I mean, you know, we saw in Chicago Anita Alvarez ejected at the ballot box. Uh, you know, obviously people in Chicago have been very active on the streets over the past couple of years saying that they're around Laquan McDonald and other situations and now, you know, we're having these officers charged. I mean, how far-reaching it is and how How transformative ends up being, you know, who knows, but it does seem to be at least a partial vindication of the fact that people sort of expressing what is acceptable and not acceptable to them on these issues of criminal justice can make at least some difference.
0: Lend support to the idea that uh, advocates should demand that these videos be released ahead of trial. By the way, if I were a prosecutor, I would never want videos of one of these incidents to be released before trial. It could impact on the ability of the defendant to get a fair trial. If I'm an advocate, I certainly want those videos videos to be released. You know, if you or I went out right now and shot and killed somebody, the responding officers, the investigators and prosecutors would start with the assumption that we had murdered someone. With a police officer, they generally start with the assumption that it was a legally justified shooting, that the officer had a reasonable apprehension of an imminent threat, and they work from there. And it's only when some red flag is raised that this just doesn't look quite right that they look at it in any other light. I suppose the good news in all of this is it reads to me when reading the indictment that there were members of the Chicago Police Department who cooperated with the prosecutors and the grand jury process so that these charges could be brought. I think it's important to point that out that there do appear to be some people who wanted to do the right thing and told the truth to the grand jury
1: hmm. Well, you know, one other issue that's sort of hanging over a lot of this is the issue of the, the consent decree in the Chicago police and obviously the Trump administration uh, wanting it to be relatively loose. Some people saying it had, you know, very little in terms of the ability to actually hold people accountable. Does this give you any hope or, you know, maybe it's indifferent to what Chicago officials have been saying, which is, you know, even though it may not be the type of consent decree people wanted, we're committed. We're going to try to, you know, follow up on these recommendations and so on and so forth.
0: Well, I can't remember the specific details, but it seems to me that they're fighting certain components of it. For example, wasn't there a requirement uh, at least at one point proposed that there be a monitor who would oversee the Chicago Police Department appointed by the federal courts? and I'm not sure if that's still going to be in place, but I think that that's an important component and and if the consent decree doesn't have the teeth of being able to you know have subpoena power and unfettered access to department documents and reports and I just worry that it'll have a little impact but I don't think there's dispute at least among scholars as to the appropriateness of the the consent decree of course it's important that the Justice Department come in and try to make some corrections there's a lot of supports that the Justice Department can offer through the consent decree process including federal resources with training supervision uh, It's important.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting piece. I mean, and how these things play out, it seems, I mean, and with the Seattle, with the Charlena Lyle shooting, it was interesting to me to sort of look at the details of that shooting and compare it to some of the criticisms the Justice Department made of the Seattle police. And it seemed to comport pretty well. And it, and it just seems like the, the the rooting out these issues is, is a pretty deep factor. And yeah, if you don't have like an independent monitor or something like that, or some way to really sort of dig in, subpoena people, hold people accountable, it's going to be very difficult to be transformed formative with these kind of of decrees
0: and keep in mind the consent decrees really don't have a whole lot to do with the police shootings in and of themselves it's usually that the police shootings call attention to systemic problems within the local law enforcement agency that gives rise to the whole need for the Justice Department to come in there. And they've had that uh, power since 1994 in a federal statute that was enacted. I think it's important to remember, Eugene, too, that we have about 900 to 1,000 times a year in this country on-duty police officers shoot and kill someone, and still only a handful of times is an officer ever arrested for murder or manslaughter resulting from one of those on-duty shootings. And so far This year, in 2017, only three officers across the country have been charged with murder and manslaughter, resulting from a shooting in a total of 82 since I started tracking this, which would have been the beginning of 2005, 13 years ago.
1: Mm, And so I I would say, thinking of that, were you surprised at all to see that Ray Tensing, in that trial, there was a second hung jury?
0: No, I learned a long time ago uh, when I was a young trial lawyer not to try to guess what a jury's going to do. A jury is unpredictable in many regards. Since uh, the Michael Slager case, when we all saw the video of Officer Slager casually shooting the man in the back as he was running away from him and no threat to the officer at all, and then going and planting his taser, planting evidence as an initial step to cover up the incident, when that murder trial ended with a hung jury I'm just at a complete loss as to understand where we are here but it's a complicated issue with these jury trials the legal standard, as you know, is that of a reasonable officer on the scene. It's not a reasonable officer with hindsight. Juries just seem very reluctant to second-guess the split-second decisions of on-duty officers in these potentially violent street encounters. And even when we see these videos over and over again, some of these traffic stops, where it's clear to some people that it just it can't possibly be anything but a crime, that jurors look at that, and once they hear the officer get on the stand and say that they feared for the life that they had to stop the threat. That's the only reason they shot him. At that point, jurors tend to forget everything the prosecution has put on. It's an objective standard. It's that of a reasonable police officer. And subjectively, what the officer may have thought is not relevant if it was unreasonable from the standpoint of a reasonable officer.
1: Well, great points there, as always. Dr. Phillips-Denson, we really appreciate you joining the show.
0: That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Laws Podcast. It was recorded on June 28, 2017, and originally aired on the Radio Sputnik show, By Any Means Necessary, on June 29, 2017. Support for the Police Integrity Laws Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash lost.